that that prayer that we just sang um, had words in it about endless uh, hope and peace. And uh, I'd like us to continue that prayer right now because I would bet there's people here right now that could use a dose of that endless hope and peace. All right, so let's let's bow right now. And if you care to, if you have particular needs that you're seeking God to meet today in the endless hope and peace theme especially, feel free to just open your hands in a, a sense of humility before him. God, we are praying for each other today. There are uh, men and women, boys and girls all around us here who would love a dose of that. And we don't know what life has looked like for them this week necessarily. You know, they know. Uh, We don't know what everyone is facing. But God, we believe and we aspire toward the, the virtue of hope and the virtue of peace. And we accept your your uh, mercy and your, uh, your, your grace in our lives. God, we uh, pray for that to come upon us. Uh, God, uh, meet us where we need it most as we open your word today in our time of teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as you can see, the pastor's not here. I'm Tom Nebel. I'm uh, filling in for a couple of weeks. He didn't take my original suggestion, which was, hey, let's just blow off uh, a couple of weeks. <laughs> but I was thinking, you know, as Pastor Bob was talking about, you know, what is it, we've got to cough up $481,000 before the fiscal year. Is I'll bet if we did that, like, now, he'd let us blow off the rest of the summer. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're going to give it anyway, <laughs> now would be the time. Will the ushers come forward at this time? (laughs) All right. Well, happy Father's Day. Uh, You know, it used to be before the advent of the unlimited weekend minutes of cell phones, it used to be that the the rule was that that the greatest number of long-distance phone calls ever in in, in a year was always on Mother's Day. And Father's Day was notorious for the greatest number of collect long-distance calls. (laughs) So we just want to love on you dads. I've been around church long enough to know that moms get loved on on Mother's Day. Dads sometimes get beat around. And uh, you know what? None of us are bulletproof in the fatherhood area. We know what it's like to make mistakes and stumble and to have questions and, and, you know, hit a few uh, home runs once in a while. I just want you to know that uh, you're loved. All right? All right. Speaking of home runs, I've never been much of a baseball player. It really is one of my least favorite sports to play. I uh, I enjoy watching it for the most part, but I've just never been good. Uh, my reactions and my batting and none of that has been good. The ball comes at me and I instinctively go, you know, like this. And And some of my earliest recollections of baseball, really my earliest, and I think it contributes to the fear and my inability to be a good baseball player, goes back to when I was a third grader, lived in Janesville at the time, and uh, was at Adams School, and I was on a little little league kind of a team, and I didn't know much about 
baseball. I didn't know much about my skills, but I know the first day they put me at second base. So I was a starting second baseman. You know, it seemed like kind of cool to be in the infield. But I, 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 I just wondered how I'd perform, I guess. And, you know, this was over 40 years ago now, but I still remember distinctively what happened on this particular occasion because I was there at second base, whatever second, third graders do, kind of kicking around and scratching wherever possible. And the kid hits a pop-up, and it's coming right toward me at second base. So I extend my hand out there, and I caught the ball. And the crowd went crazy. At least half the crowd did, the ones cheering for our team. And they, they went crazy, at least in my estimation. They were applauding and cheering. And I finally figured out that was my moment in the sun. They were cheering. They were just thrilled about me and my baseball acumen. So I ate it all up by doing one of these. Can you believe I did this? But I was doing this. <laughs> I remember it distinctively, you know, the muscle man look, and I was walking around like this, and I still got the ball in the glove, and the crowd was cheering me on. And they were eating up, too. They were, they were screaming even louder. And the more I did it, the more they screamed. And I absolutely loved it, and I, I ate it up until the inning was over, and I found out when I went back to the bench that the reason they were screaming was because when that pop-up occurred, there was a guy over on first base who had run to second base and run to third base and was halfway home before they figured out they could send him back because the second baseman was entirely self-absorbed and was missing a double play. (laughs) So I learned ever since that time that uh, if you're going to be in the game, you've got to make routine double plays. Because I could have that day. And I guess that contributed a little bit to my, uh, my dislike for baseball. It certainly contributed to my dislike for being around crowds. <laughs> With that as a backdrop, we continue what Pastor Marcus started, which is a series through the book of James in the Bible. The Bible is made up of many books, and sometimes they are written from people to other people, and, and, the, and the recipient gets the name, like, Timothy, the letters to Timothy. But when you see something like James, James fits into a category of what we call general epistles. That means general letters that were written by the person whose name is on the book, James. And and some of the general epistles in the Bible will be James, Peter, and John. That's easier for me to remember. My dad was Peter. He had brothers James and John. So James was writing to a bunch of people, y'all, he was writing to. And in this general epistle... He is going to take us down a pathway of seeing that our faith really does work. And uh, and James, what do we know about him? He was uh, the half-brother of Jesus, one of Jesus' younger brothers to uh, his mother Mary. We know that James was the earliest leader of the earliest expression of the church in Jerusalem. So he is writing this epistle to try to make faith work. And one of the things we're going to see today during the text we we, uh, unfold is that James is calling those who really want to be in the game to be those who routinely make double plays. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to uh, turn to James chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. If you don't have your Bible, I always like to recommend that you grab one. We've got them all around the place here. And, and, and put it on your lap, at least for the beginning of this message, because we're going to take a look at the structure James is using in verses 19 
then all the way down to uh, 20, uh, uh, 27. And we're going to see how he is looking for those who want to be in the game of faith, those who really want to be Christ followers. He's going to challenge them to be among those who routinely are making double plays. And he's doing the, the construct of this text, I think, in a kind of a unique way because what we're going to see is he is going to apply it for us, first of all, and then he's going to give us the general principle, and then he's going to apply it again at the end. So what I want us to do is look at the beginning and the end of this text. We're going to forget about the middle, and I want you to, to look for the, the routine, uh, kind of the redundancies that he's going to use to apply. So like if I say he applied it, then he gives the principle, then he applies it again. It would be like me saying this. Um, when you go to the bathroom be sure to wash your hands. Okay, that's an application. And then I could explain it to you. I could give the principle and say, you see, because we want to do what we can to stay healthy and avoid the spread of disease. So, wash your hands when you go to the bathroom. Okay, that's kind of what James is doing here because he's going to apply it, then he's going to give us a principle and he's going to apply it again. That's why I wanted you to grab your Bibles to look at this because these are the parallels and they're the applications. The one is 19 to 21. We're forgetting about 22 to 25 and then we're going to 26, 27. And as I read this, I'm going to read it rather quickly. I want you to see if you can find the parallels, the redundancies that he's making in each of these texts. Okay, so it goes like this. My dear brothers, take notice of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. I'm speaking kind of quickly right now because I want to get through this. Slow to speak and slow to become angry for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Okay, kind of caught that. Now look for the parallels here later on. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight ring on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See any commonalities between those two applications? I bet you kind of did, right? Okay, one commonality. I'm seeing it in, in uh, verse, verse uh, 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 19 where he says, everyone should be quick to listen, and what? Slow to speak. So it has to do with how we verbally express ourselves. Then you jump over to the later text, and what does it talk about? Keeping a tight rein on his tongue. We're going to see there's a whole chunk of James's te uh, uh, teaching later on in chapter 3 that has to do with, with being careful how we speak. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard lesson to learn, but when we learn it, it can really benefit us greatly. And then what's another parallel application? Look down in verse 21. Therefore, what? Get rid of all moral filth. Which to me is a little bit of a surprise because this dude was writing a couple thousand years ago. And we tend to think that we've got the corner on the market when it comes to moral filth. We're like, what kind of messes could you all get yourselves into back then? You weren't running around on the internet where you shouldn't be, right? Um, you, you weren't text messaging you weren't uh, watching all kinds of uh, uh, things that, that can uh, beguile us but also uh, uh, trap us on television. What kind of moral filth could they get into? Well, they got into it because he's telling them, keep yourselves away from moral filth. And 
than the other text. What does it say? Right down there at the end in verse 27, being polluted by the world. So you see, he's saying the same thing. You know, wash your hands. The reason is to avoid disease, wash your hands. You understand? He's he's making this. So you can be sure that part of what we're teaching on today says we got to get our act together in this regard, how we talk and and uh, how we live our lives morally. It sounds like Bible stuff, right? It sounds like what a preacher would, would want to whack us upside the head with. But I think we're going to find benefit here in, in being reminded that we need to apply what we believe. In a sense, we need to be doing routine double plays if we want to be in the game. Uh, ben Franklin, Poor Richard's Almanac, here's what he said many moon ago about this whole issue of, uh, uh, of living what we believe. He says, how many observe Christ's birthday, how few his precepts, oh, tis easier to keep holidays than commandments. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, it's easier to look religious, it's easier to look like people of faith than it is to really get there. So yeah, we're going to be challenged in this way, and I hope I'm not going to shame you, but I hope I'm going to challenge you that if you're going to be in this game, you've got to be about the business of making routine double plays. So let's back up, and we're going to go right back to verse 19 and maybe break that down just a little bit more. Look at what it says. My brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. A number of applications there. Uh, he's talking uh, about being uh, quick, to, quick to listen. Not necessarily one of my great traits. In fact, I'm almost convinced that when our pastor assigns texts of scripture to me to teach on, he's, he's sitting there in his office dreaming of me saying, what are the... What are the the multiple dysfunctions of Tom Nebel's life that we can dare him to teach on. <laughs> so he must give application and revelation about his own life. I, I, I look at this and it's just so hard because it's, it's stuff that I'm kind of a latecomer and growing into and I'm sure I'm not there yet. Okay, so it talks about, about being quick to listen, to, uh, to not shut people out. I remember a time when my kids were young and uh, my one boy kept was in a habit of always interrupting and I just said well uh, uh, you're going to learn to not interrupt me when I'm doing things uh, you're going to respectfully so, so he screams at me up the stairs just a little kid he screams up the stairs dad dad and I said I got something to go don't interrupt dad 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 you know I said now listen uh, if you have an issue you come and talk to me and then we'll reason it out and we'll kind of uh you know, take it from there. So I'm kind of not listening, and then one of the other kids that's down in the basement yells, so my other son and everybody in the house can hear, don't worry, he's breathing now. <laughs> so I'm not necessarily good at this, but then it says be, be slow to speak. I'm one of those people that If I get my mind made up on something, I'm just waiting for you to stop so I can get my opinion made known, okay, and slow to become angry. Anger is a funny thing because uh, it's prevalent, and sometimes it's good, but many times it's not. 
In fact, Jesus was all about anger appropriately, right? The text we're looking at here, it says, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteous life God deserves, which means there are ways we can way go over the line with anger. And sometimes we do that with, with virulence and, and with, uh, with, with uh, explosiveness. Other times it's what uh, they call passive-aggressive behavior. You know what that means? It means you're mad about something. You're just not, you're just not putting that uh, on, uh, on for display. You're, you're being subtle. Like they say, anger leaks. And the anger will come out in some way. And that's why, you know, with anger, we're just one letter away from danger. And if you are, are one who is living in the world of anger routinely, man, you've got to do something about that. Okay, and, and maybe that means you've got to befriend someone and talk it over or, or um, seek God and memorize scripture or whatever it would be, but you can't let this take over your life because what does it say right in this text? It says, it says, it says for man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God deserves. So the command, get rid of it all. Get rid of it. L- learn to launch that stuff and get rid of moral filth because it's not doing you any good. In fact, the word humbly is there. It says, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. The idea of word in the Bible is used to talk about propositional truth. So someone can speak the word to you. They could get a, what we call a word from God on your behalf. They could be speaking into your life. It says, humbly accept the word. Uh, a more common way we use it is to describe the scriptures. Which is, uh, which is propositional truth that directly comes from God. And, and the, the idea then by application is that we're to, uh, we're to be those who routinely are making double plays, right? We're, we're learning, we're listening, but then we're applying it. And he gives some, some clear examples. Verse 22 then part we didn't read earlier, the part now where he's going to give our principle about this double play business. Do not listen to the word and so, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away, immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Gives an illustration there. Remember, he's trying to say, don't just listen to this stuff. We listen to it all the time. We hear it on Sundays. We, um, we can hear it in the car. We can get podcasts. We've got all kinds of ways to receive propositional truth, truth that is eternal, comes from God. We've got ways to do that. He says, don't just be listeners, but you've got to be doers. You can't just settle for the single catch, the single out. You've got to be one who is turning the double play. Okay, And, uh, and he's, he gives a, an illustration. He says, it's like looking into a mirror. Now, in those days, mirrors weren't as good as they were nowadays. Oftentimes, they were public, polished metal. You could get a semblance of what you were. And he's saying that, but at the very least, Let's say that you're concerned about how you look, and you look at it, and then you see some things that are awry, and then you just kind of walk away. Now, that happened to me just the other day. Um, I've got a, a, had a little bloodied mess on my head the other day. Um, I can say two words that will elicit sympathy for you. Sump pump. Yeah, I mean, our basement was totally 
I mean, if you want shreds of carpet, we got them. Okay, they're in the garage right now. But I, I was installing the sump pump, and as I was leaning down, part of the broken mess of stuff that we had to extract from our basement included a lot of sharp, broken pieces of wood, and I'm going down to the sump pump, and I got sliced. Okay, So immediately I thought, this could be a sermon illustration. <laughs> but on my way to the bathroom, um, I looked in the mirror, and it was much more bloody than it deserved to be. And I called my son and he helped patch me up. But imagine if I just would have looked at that bloody mess and said, well, there's a bloody mess. Would have walked away. You know, I suppose it would have coagulated and I would have looked even scarier than, than could, could be expected. But that's the idea there. You can see truth, all right, but now you're, you're just walking away from it. Okay? And he uses that illustration about not being those who just, just uh, listen but don't do. And when I thought of this kind of whole teaching, I was thinking about uh, something that some psychologists did back in the uh, 1950s. Guy named, uh, guys were named Joseph Luft and, uh, and Harry Ingram. And they were coming up with a matrix, a construct, to sort of explain how it is that we see ourselves and what's really true. And they came up with this thing called the Johari window because it was Joseph and Harry who came up with it. And it's the Johari window. And you can see that on the, along the, uh, the, the x-axis here, we can, we can uh, articulate what's known to ourselves and what's not known to ourselves. And then along the y-axis, we can articulate what is known to others and what's not known to others. So if you break this down as a matrix, the first quadrant up here, the known to self, known to others, this part is what we call the open quadrant. That's the open self. That's stuff that I know about me and you know about me. All right? And as an example, here's one thing I know about me because that's how I always describe myself. Say, I'm likable and I know what I talk about. Okay? And you probably, if you know anything about me, spend any time around me, you'd say that's probably true. You'd say, Tom is likable and he kind of knows what he's talking about. So those, that would be an example of the open part of me. Okay? The open self. But what about the second quadrant? Stuff I don't know about me, but you know about or others would know. That would be the blind self. You know what, this morning during the first service, a guy reminded me of a blind self-issue for me. He said, do you know that you scratch your nose quite a bit when you're teaching? And I'm like, you know, I know that, but I forget about it once in a while. And I said, I'm not going to do that at all during the second service today, was the thought that I had. So I'm not. But I'm doing it on the inside. But the blind self, that would be the stuff that... Uh, that others see in you that you don't see. For instance, like our pastor, um, he has an opinion of me that is different of my opinion of me. <laughs> From what I told, he used this a couple of weeks ago. I don't see that, but there are, are things about me that others see and I never see. And, and you know, one example just... just hits me hard. It was a good thing for me to be hit hard, but it was a couple of years back when we were on a, a family vacation, and I had taken the family in tow into this uh, resort where we were staying and found out we were in the wrong building, and I was a little frustrated by that because the map didn't entirely make sense. And um, when we walked out after having talked to the person there at the guest services, uh, my older son said to me, boy, Dad, you are such a jerk. I mean, he was just, he was just embarrassed by me. 
And I was defensive when he said, I said, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? I said, what? And everybody else in the family waited and said, you are just such a jerk sometimes. Honestly, folks, I don't know what I did then. But I started to think about this pattern in my life where I had been disrespectful to people in the service industry. You know, telemarketers, being harsh with them. Um, fast food, going through the fast food. Do you like fries with that? Listen, if I wanted fries, I would have said I wanted fries. <laughs> Just harsh, harsh stuff that didn't need to be there. You go into the big box store. How you doing? You know, and you know, you know, they don't care how you're doing, and I, you know, and just. So I had this thing about me, and I, I, I don't backtrack on the fact that I know I'm likable and I know all this stuff, but there was this thing about me that was blind to me, but others saw it in me, and I'm like, I have got to get my hands around that. And it was through being exposed and at first being defensive, but then agreeing with it that I have gotten better. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was in one of these, um, one of these big box stores buying something, and when I was done, the, the guy who was helping me um, I, I just, you know, thanked him for his service. And he said to me, he said, thank you for your, he paused, he said, thank you for your friendliness. I was like, wow. So you don't know what that means to me. It means I'm making progress. It also means I can tell this story in church. <laughs> but that's that whole blind self thing, Okay. Where, where there are things about you. In fact, I would ask you to, to think, what is something about you that you didn't know until somebody else told you about it? Okay? When you were finally asked to make the double play, all right, that you weren't just going to hear it, but you were going to do something about it. And you might even do that with the meaningful relationships in your life. You might say, hey, you know what? Tell me. Tell me. Is there something I'm not seeing about me? And I'll bet there's someone near to you who would love you enough to not blow you out of the water with that kind of a thing. You know, and, and, and you could grow from that. Unlike this, uh, this guy who, who goes into the pub and he orders up three pints of beer. The bartender says, wouldn't you just rather have them one at a time? He says, no, no, I drink this way because I have two brothers. We would always drink together, but now one's on the East Coast and one is on the West Coast. And, and I, 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 we just have made a pledge that whenever we drink, we will drink in honor of each other. So every time he goes in, he gets these three pints. The bartender knows the drill, pours up the three pints every time he does it. And finally, one day, the guy comes in, he says, I know, three pints. The guy puts up his hand, he says, no, just two. The bartender says, oh, my, wow. Doesn't say anything. He pours him the two pints, delivers them at the table, walks back, and, you know, he's doing business. But the bartender's feeling self-conscious about this poor fellow in the corner there just drinking his two pints of beer. Finally, he says, I'm going to go talk to him. He wipes off his hands, goes around the bar, goes over to him, and just puts his hand on his shoulder and says, listen, mister, if you've got to talk about this, I'm here for you. I mean, it's got to be a terrible thing, you know, to be sitting here by yourself, and, you know, the loss of a brother and all this has just got to be incredibly difficult, and I just want you to know I, I'm here for you. Guy says, no, my brothers are fine. It's just that I quit drinking. So there's a guy who's looked in the mirror and has walked away. There's a blind self. I'll bet there's parts of our lives here where we could benefit from, 
from really seeing truth. So the, the, going on in the Johari window then, then on the bottom left corner, what's known to me but not known to others, that would be my hidden self, right? That could be maybe a dastardly thing that I have done or, um, or, or, or just something that I choose not to reveal. And um, generally speaking, the more open we can move toward the, the better things are for us. I'm not saying everything needs to be revealed to everybody, but this is a place where habits can develop. This is a place where, uh, where, where we can get entrapped. This is a place where we can become addicted. It's all these kinds of things. So we want to steer from that one. And then the last quadrant is the one that we call the unknown quadrant. That means it's stuff I don't know about me, and you can't figure it out either, and it's just part of the, the, the mess of being human. And it's stuff maybe we're never quite going to figure out, but it does cause us to be humble to say, you know, we're broken people and we don't have it entirely together. Like this old couple is uh, sitting in their living room and he's concerned about her because she's kind of losing it. And uh, he just has to repeat things to her and he wants to make sure again and again. So finally, uh, one time they're watching television and this woman gets up, she's headed to the kitchen. She says, hey, honey, could I get you something? He says, well, yes, you could, as a matter of fact. I would like a bowl of vanilla ice cream with some chocolate sauce and some peanuts on it and she says okay fine and he says "Uh, before you go let me say it one more time so you don't miss it bowl of vanilla ice cream chocolate sauce peanuts on it she says I got it he says could you repeat it for me she says yeah bowl of vanilla ice cream chocolate sauce peanuts he says okay fine so she's in the kitchen he's waiting he hears this clinking around in there she's making a lot of noise and it seems like an inordinate amount of moving around of pans moving and things clanking and so on takes an interminable amount of time. She finally comes back in after about 10 minutes and she hands him a plate with two fried eggs on it. And he looks down at that and he's scratching his head and he looks just quizzically at her and says, well, where's my toast? (laughs) That's that whole unknown area that we're messed up more than we'd ever know. So that whole idea then of making a routine double play because, because the text here, looking at it one more time, verses 22 and following, it says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. It says, you know, that Christians, uh, uh, um, the, the stuff that I have heard is that only, that, that about a quarter of people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians ever read their Bible. So, doesn't say doesn't say don't listen it just says don't merely do that but step one is let's start doing it look at what it says in verse 25 it says but the man but the woman but the young person who looks intently into this perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this not forgetting what he has heard but doing it he will be blessed in what he does. There's an admonition here that says, be about this stuff of reading the Bible. Be about the stuff of being exposed to truth. So can I challenge you? If you're not in that game, could you get into the game? And, 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 and just find a place in the Bible to start reading. Are you going to understand everything? No, I don't understand everything in the Bible. Certainly our pastor doesn't understand everything. <laughs> but... But just start somewhere. And if it's hard, sign somewhere else. Read the New Testament, the older or the portion that's toward the back of the Bible, and just get into that a little bit. And, and, and just find a, a routine drill where you can do this. 
I myself, I read the Bible. I try to do it every day. Every once in a while, I'll read through it on an annual basis just to, to, to be reminded of everything that is there. So I was traveling with a guy a couple of years back, a Filipino friend of mine works with me nationally on some of the stuff, and, and we, were, uh, we were talking about our devotional habits, and he asked me what I did, and I said, well, I, 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 I said I read the Bible every day. I said I don't, I don't read it through. I'm not one of those guys who reads it through every year or anything. I said, what about you? He says, well, I read the Old Testament through at least twice every year and the New Testament at least three times every year. And when he said that, I made a commitment right then that I'd never room with him again. <laughs> okay. But folks, we got to be about this. The man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, this is for your benefit. So can I challenge you to be a starter, even before the day is out? Get into this. But we don't forget what's there, right? We, we want to be, as people who are part of the game, those who are routinely turning double plays. So he sums it up then with another of the application texts, which is, uh, which is verse 26. It says, If anyone considers himself religious yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, it is, he deceives himself, his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So there's similar applications. Here he's talking about those who are most destitute in society, some yet today, but certainly true back in those days, 2,000 years ago, orphans and widows who were entirely destitute. He says your, your faith has got to work. You've got to turn that double play. You can't just listen to it and hear it. You've got to make it work. It says religion that is pure. The type of religion that God is really about is the religion where we are not just listening. We're actually turning and doing and living up to our calling we want to be in the game, we've got to be willing to routinely turn the double play.